Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast on COPD. We welcome Dr. Emily Wan. Dr. Wan is an associate physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. The learning objectives of this podcast are, one, recognize the detrimental effects of COPD exacerbations on patients' quality of life, disease course, and health outcomes. Two, Accurately assess the treatable traits of COPD, symptom burden, and risk of future exacerbations. And three, apply evidence-based guidelines to individualized treatment of stable COPD based on symptom burden and exacerbation risk. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Hi, my name is Emily Wan, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician and a COPD researcher based at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, I'm going to go over some frequently asked questions about COPD. So the first question is, why do you think the incidence of COPD has increased among women? Well, the prevalence of COPD among women has definitely increased over the past few decades, and there are likely several reasons which contribute to this trend. So first, the prevalence of cigarette smoking among women increased dramatically in the 1960s and 1970s, and as these women have aged, many more of them are now developing symptomatic COPD. Second, uh, there's actually evidence that women may be biologically and and anatomically more susceptible to the harmful effects of airborne toxins like cigarette smoke. So if you think about it, women generally have smaller body sizes and consequently smaller lungs relative to men. If you imagine the same size cigarette being smoked by either a larger or a smaller individual, the smaller individual will have a larger effective dose relative to their body size. So There are likely a lot of factors which contribute to the differential susceptibility between men and women, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface on this. The next question is, can you have both asthma and COPD, or can asthma turn into COPD? So to the first question, yes, an individual can definitely have both asthma and COPD. And in fact, this is currently a very hot area in the field for both clinicians and researchers. You may have heard of the term asthma-COPD overlap, or ACO. Now, while there's not a consensus on the exact diagnostic criteria for ACO, I tend to think of it as an individual who meets criteria for COPD, so someone who's a former smoker who has a post-bronchodilator FEV1 to FVC ratio less than 0.7, who also has significant features of atopy, or allergic disease, such as seasonal allergies, allergic rhinitis, or eczema. For the second part of the question, can asthma turn into COPD? There is evidence that individuals with poorly controlled asthma, either alone or in conjunction with exposure to environmental toxins, that these individuals can develop fixed or irreversible obstruction, which is the definition of COPD. So regardless of how you arrive at ACO, there's evidence that individuals with overlap syndrome have increased exacerbations and accelerated lung function decline. So these are really important patients to identify in practice. 
The next question is, what role do eosinophils play in COPD treatment? So eosinophils are an exciting biomarker with potential utility in the management of COPD. And the great news is you can actually easily get this data by just looking through the EMR. Now the one caveat is you should make sure that the CBC was drawn at a time when the patient was in their usual state of health, meaning that they weren't sick, having an acute exacerbation or another infection at the time. But otherwise, you can mine your electronic medical record uh, to look for an old CBC. There's evidence that individuals with an eosinophil count greater than 300 cells per microliter may be at increased risk for acute exacerbations. Conversely, individuals with a low eosinophil count, meaning less than 100 cells per microliter, may be more prone to getting pneumonia uh, with inhaled corticosteroid use. The next question is, when do you recommend triple therapy? So I'm going to take a step back for a second and define what triple therapy is. So I think of triple therapy as basically having a patient on a pharmacological agent from each of the major classes of medications for COPD. And those medications fall into the classes as follows. So you have your long-acting beta agonist, your LABA, you have long-acting muscarinic antagonists, your LAMAs, and you have inhaled corticosteroids, your ICSs. So triple therapy is recommended for individuals with COPD who have both dyspnea and exacerbations, which is not well controlled, on two-agent therapy. I will say, I think it's fairly uncommon to start an individual on triple therapy right away, but ex you know, exceptions exist, and it certainly depends on the severity of the initial clinical presentation. The next question is, what are your thoughts on triple therapy in one inhaler? And do patients need to meet certain criteria requirements for triple therapy inhalers to be covered by insurance? So for the first part of the question, there are actually many ways to prescribe triple therapy. For example, if an individual is already on a combination LAMA-LABA, a clinician may add an inhaled steroid separately. And this tends to be what I see the most often, uh, since patients often like continuing the inhaler that they're familiar with, and the separate inhaler may allow for dose adjustments of the different components. For example, if you were titrating that inhaled steroid dose. But with that being said, there are also triple therapy inhalers available now. So by that, I mean all three pharmacological uh, agents your LABA, LAMA, and inhaled steroid are all available in one device. And the benefit of these inhalers are that really there's just one device, and typically these are available with once or twice a day dosing. So these tend to be very convenient for patients in that they just have one inhaler that they can place somewhere where they'll remember to take their medicine. Uh, a potential downside is that the ratios of the individual medicines are fixed, meaning you can't titrate the individual components. But this is a consideration that you just have to balance uh, with the patient's convenience of having one device. 
So to answer the second portion of the question, which is regarding insurance coverage, there are so many individual coverage plans that it's difficult to make a uh, blanket statement regarding coverage. But I want to add that there are actually lots of programs for financial assistance, uh, including reduced co-pays. Uh, in the past, uh, you might learn about these programs or get coupons uh, in your practitioner's office. But in the age of COVID, I generally recommend checking with the individual manufacturer's websites for these programs. They can often be quite helpful. The next question is, which patients are candidates for Roflumilast or azithromycin, and what are the dosings for each of these medications? So I generally step up to systemic therapy when an individual has persistent exacerbations despite triple therapy, or for whatever reason they can't tolerate triple therapy. For azithromycin, the typical prophylactic regimen is either 500 milligrams three times a week, or 250 milligrams daily. Now, you do need to make sure your patient doesn't have or is not at risk for having an increased QTC, so checking that EKG is very important. For roflumilast, um, this is for individuals with severe COPD defined as having an FEV1 less than 50% of predicted, uh, with evidence of chronic bronchitis and a history of exacerbations. So it's a very specific group of people with COPD that would be candidates for roflumilast. And you would typically start at 250 milligrams daily for four weeks and then escalate to 500 milligrams daily, which would be their maintenance dose. Now, you should not use roflumilast in individuals with advanced liver disease or with significant psychiatric disease. And I would say, in general, if you're considering roflumilast, I would at least consider a consult uh, with a specialist at that point. So when should you consider stepping down therapy? So if an individual has been well-controlled in terms of symptoms and acute exacerbations for about a year, I will consider de-escalating therapy, especially if that's something that the patient really wants to do. Now, the choice of which agent to withdraw or step down really depends on the individual profile of your patient. For example, if you have a patient who has been well-controlled, who hasn't had an acute exacerbation in the last year, whose eosinophil count is less than 300, that might be an individual that I would consider withdrawing the inhaled corticosteroids on. The next question is, what have you found are the most effective smoking cessation tools and methods? So this is a remarkably challenging question. Um, and in general, I tend to advocate a multimodality approach which integrates both counseling and behavior modification with pharmacological therapies. And in my experience, having combined modalities tends to be more beneficial. However, every patient is different, and many of your patients will have tried different methods. The one thing I try to do is I bring it up at every visit, no matter what, 
And I also try to be familiar with the different options and the correct use of products, just to kind of engage them in that conversation and to make sure that they're using the products that are available correctly. For example, nicotine gum is not meant to be chomped vigorously like bubble gum. You're supposed to chew it a little and then you park the gum between your cheek and your gums to allow for maximal nicotine absorption and then you repeat the process, gently chew, then park. Um, and, and some people are surprised uh, that this is how you're supposed to use the gum. But I just want to reinforce that really bringing it up every visit uh, is one of the best things that you can do. The next question is, how do you diagnose or assess COPD in this time of mostly telehealth visits when you're unable to perform spirometry? So this has definitely been a challenging time for medicine, and pulmonary medicine especially. So spirometry is considered an aerosol-generating procedure, and in my institution, its use has been really limited to urgent clinical settings, for example, uh, pre-lung resection or prior to chemotherapy. But with that being said, spirometry remains the gold standard for the diagnosis of COPD really demonstrating an FEV1 to FVC ratio, less than 0.7 airflow limitation diagnosis um, necessary for COPD. And the good news is once you've established the diagnosis with spirometry, spirometry is not something that needs to be repeated routinely at regular intervals. Uh, in our practice, we typically obtain spirometry once every few years unless the patient has new or worsening symptoms, in which case we would repeat it sooner. So unfortunately, in the age of COVID, we've really been relegated to using clinical suspicion and a therapeutic trial of an inhaler. But what we've done is we've usually notated in the patient's note um, that spirometry is currently being deferred, but that they should come in and they, that if they've not had spirometry in the past, that they should have that diagnostic test um, during safer times. The next question is, with so many new inhaler devices on the market, it's hard for primary care clinicians to keep up with various inhaler techniques and to demonstrate their use. What advice do you have for PCPs counseling patients on inhaler use? So the types of inhalers and the medicines that come in each of those delivery devices really do seem to multiply year after year, and it is definitely challenging to keep up with them. So I personally love the COPD Foundation's Inhaler Education Series, and this is actually available on their website um, at www.copdfoundation, all one word, .org. Uh, they offer non-branded instructional videos uh, for all of the major delivery devices. In addition, uh, I, I also recommend utilizing your pharmacists. Um, many of your pharmacists will be able to demonstrate how to properly use the inhaler that the patient is actually being prescribed. So these are two resources that I like very much. The next question is, can you comment on COPD treatment in patients with COVID should it be changed at all, and should nebulizers be avoided? So COVID-19 has definitely changed the way we manage people with COPD, 
especially those with signs or symptoms concerning for COVID or those who have actually been diagnosed with COVID. Nebulizers are considered an aerosol-generating procedure, and their use in many hospitals may actually be restricted in persons under investigation, so the PUIs, or in those with confirmed COVID. So this has been a huge challenge for individuals with COPD who get admitted who are no longer able to receive nebulizer treatments and may be relegated you know, to using a metered dose inhaler with or without a spacer in the hospital. An additional caveat or that I want to point out is that many of our COPD patients actually have home nebulizers, um, and so they should be cognizant that if they're using their devices at home, the potential for aerosolization exists, so if there are other individuals at risk in the home, they should really take extra precautions to keep them safe. But I also want to emphasize that staying on uh, their maintenance medications and really taking measures to protect themselves uh, is absolutely critical in this time. So with that, uh, I want to thank you all for taking the time to tune into this podcast. I hope it's been a useful experience. Thank you and take care. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description, where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.